2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hurlingham Club for a very special evening. I'm Damien Smith, your host for the evening, joined by our editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck, and the man who doesn't really need any introduction,
1: Sir Sterling Moss. Thank you, thank you, you better hold the applause in case I don't deserve it, so thank you very much.
2: We should start by saying, of course, it's a happy birthday for Sterling, He's just turned 84, so...
1: Uh... Thank you. Um, I must tell you, when you get up there, actually, it's better off forgetting them. I don't <laughs> mind being 83 in a bit. So. <laughs> no more talk
2: about age tonight. Um, Nigel, before we um, talk to Sterling, uh, I know that you recently saw a, a fascinating film, 1955 Belgian Grand Prix, um, just tell us about um, that film. Yeah, I did. It
0: was—it was, it was actually—it was on Thursday evening at Spa, uh, and it was an evening put on by Shell, um, and they found a beautiful old cinema in Malmedy, so it was a perfect location for showing a movie like this. And it was a film that they made in 1955 about the Belgian Grand Prix, and who knows how many years it was lost and it was recently rediscovered and remastered. And it's half an hour, and it's literally sensational. Uh, and of course, that was Ewan Fangio, yeah. my friend. It was, it he was. W- he yeah. wouldn't
1: get out of the way, though. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it, but it's, it's an amazing film, Sterling, apart from everything else. I mean, nobody really needs to be reminded it, just what Formula One was like in those days and how dangerous it was. Yeah. But it still, I mean, I'm sure I must have seen that film long ago and, and maybe forgotten it, but it still startled me. Um, and after the film, when we came out, because um, it was Shell and Ferrari, Alonso and Massa were both there. Um, yeah, and they, and they had been asked to show up in period dress. And they said to uh, <laughs> said to the Shell guys, where the hell are we gonna find any 1955 Ferrari Formula One overalls? And of course they said, well, no need. (laughs) 1955, just turn up in chinos and a t-shirt and you'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And after the film, they were just literally wide-eyed. They they just simply could not take in how, how, uh, you know, how perilous it was in those uh, days.
1: Yes, it was. But uh, in those days, of course, um, O'Rouge, which is, which is quite a big corner now, we used to go down, I'm talking now the f- early fifties, to go down o into the corner of O'Rouge and then double back and the hairpin. And then of course out and rejoin the circuit further on. Yeah. But
0: the thing, the most extraordinary thing though, is the commentator, wh- who should have been Roman Baxter, but wasn't, um, was talking about Stavolo and saying, well, of course, the boys take this almost flat out. Uh, but there's a ditch waiting for any ill-judged exit. And when you see it, I mean, it's not a ditch, it's a culvert. There's a culvert, deep culvert. And then beyond that, there's a barbed wire
1: fence. <laughs> I made a stop round there actually at one time. <laughs> the wheel came off the Lotus again.
0: Oh, that, 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 that Bonneville. Yeah, yeah, Bonneville, I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it struck me. I mean, you know, I remember the first time you ever said this to me and I, I, it amazed me. You are most unfashionably one of those who believes, fundamentally believes racing should be dangerous.
1: Yeah, I and mean, yeah. when, when, when you're of so 17 or 18, one of the things that entices you into it is, is because it's dangerous. And, uh, you know, if one accepts that. And you go out and you try to watch out that you don't hurt yourself or kill yourself. Uh, Okay, unfortunately I did hurt myself a few times. I'm here so I didn't die. But uh, I think people still today are quite surprised sometimes when when they meet me, because I'm sure they think I'm dead long ago. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm not.
2: (laughs) I think for for younger generations, it's almost impossible to um, imagine how dangerous it was then. But it was just accepted. Uh, yeah
1: I mean I mean one of the the great circuits of the world really was was uh, Bern at Bremgarten, and uh, the trouble with that of course, half the circuit was under the trees half wasn 't and that was really quite a dangerous circuit because because one's you know the average speed is so high but uh, when you 're racing each week and it 's dangerous. You don't really think about the danger. I mean, you do when you get to certain corners. There are corners in, it, in racing that you come to which are really exceptionally difficult because they're nearly flat out. And there was one I had at uh, Syracuse, I think. And I, every time I went through this corner, I came out and I had a f- three or four inches left on the outside, and I, and I knew it was. I knew it should be flat, but I hadn't got the guts. And uh, so what I did, I came into it and then uh, just before I got I was starting down this hill, I put my foot down. And then when I looked up, it was too late because if I backed off, I'd, go, I'd got set over. So it would have be been a shunt. But once I'd done it, it was you know it was quite quite easy. Well, not easy, but it was um, you know a bit scary, But <laughs> that's how it was.
2: And not just the circus, when you're racing wheel to wheel with with rivals week in week out. And in those days, the, the trust between you. Had to be immense because,
1: yeah, well, was, some of them, of course, were you know, were, were really very fast. I mean, people like Fangio, and so on. there were a few that weren't very quick, but you just hope they get out of the way. Um, I mean, there was quite a respect, a respect between the drivers, I think, because it was dangerous and everybody knew that, and uh, therefore they drove accordingly. I mean, there were a few people who came in who shouldn't really have been there, and uh, you know, in different races, you say, what what's happened, so and so, but, but but one knew them anyway in this style
0: but i remember you telling me that the uh, because uh we have the one you know the one move permitted in formula one now where you are allowed to swerve in front of your the guy who's trying to overtake you. you're you allowed to do it once and i i said i was talking to you about that and you said well we used to call that dirty driving yes I'm and uh, and the one guy you were set at the time was farina yeah Ruthless.
1: Oh, he, he was for free. It was a dirty driver. I mean, he's the one that caused. I think KP to have that shunt uh, To Brooklyn's I, I believe but he was yeah, he I mean I remember uh, when I had an HWM which was. I mean way out of it because he got an alpha and We're going into a couple of corners and he's lapped me and Fangio was behind him. He was he was he was right behind me and then Fangio behind that and uh, when we went into the corner he, he, he cut me out and so I had to, you know, take avoiding action and so on and so forth. But then, because he'd done that, he bucketed up his own corner, and he had problems. And Fangio came past, and he was smiling on his face. Yeah. And uh, but, the, but one, one knew that Freena was a guy that was, you know, w- w- wouldn't bother about, uh, you know, any any manners at all. No.
0: And yet, he was the. The beautiful stylist that you uh, you oh, copied. Cop
1: oh, his style was lovely. I mean, I, I liked it. I thought when I looked and saw him driving, I thought, well, he doesn't even look as though he's trying, you know. And he's got his arm out straight and leaning back. And also, anyway, I couldn't couldn't see over a windscreen because I'm rather small. So it helps with you your head back like this because you're looking high, you know.
2: Sterling, um, F- F- Fanjo always comes up in in conversation when we're talking to you. He was your teammate at Mercedes. Yeah. Um, teammates are very much in the news at the moment, with the news that Alonso and Kimi Raikkonen will be teammates at Ferrari next year. Yeah. What, what's your opinion about putting two bulls in one field like that?
1: Uh, risky. I, I, uh, I, I, I haven't really thought deeply enough about it, but I think it could be problems. I mean, nowadays it's not really risky because it's in a very dangerous sport. But uh, w- when you were driving the, uh, with the older cars, um, there were people that weren't, you know, that weren't really up to it, but otherwise, otherwise, you know, you just drove knowing that when you catch up somebody or if they pass, you know, there's going to be maybe problems.
2: And what's your opinion of the best sort of teammate? in one of Nigel's columns, we just finished the magazine today, and he quotes the famous Gerhard Berger quote the best teammates
1: three seconds a lap slower. Um, yes. <laughs> would you agree with that? Yeah, very, very, very much so. Because the only way you, can, <laughs> the only way you can tell how good a bloke is, is looking at his other, other driver, and I mean that's pretty telling, and uh, you can't get away from it. I mean, it, the, the times it, it staggers me actually that the, how close the times are in Formula One now. I mean, it's it, it, it's ridiculous how close they get. I mean. It, it, I, I don't know quite how it's... Ha- I suppose it's happened because the cars are all so good now that you start on a high high level and you can go from there There's so it's small bits. But I can remember <clears throat> being at Nürburgring one year and Fangio came through. I, I forget when I had a van wall and this thing had broken. Fangio came through on this, on the, this particular lap. I think it was six seconds later, the next guy arrived. Now, it sounds really boring, but it wasn't. It was, if For some reason, it was quite an exciting thing to see. He came through, and then it all went quiet, and then the next guy came through. You know, it's quite quite exciting, actually. Sterling,
2: Teammates, do you think there
1: should be respect? Oh, should there be respect? With
2: a t- yeah. Su- Susie was just asking, if you didn't hear, um, sh- should there be respect between teammates?
1: Yeah, there should be respect, but I, but, but I think... It, it, Really, I mean, I respected Fangio that much. I was very happy to sit right behind him and, uh, what, a year, a, a yard away. We're known as the train because I, I had complete faith in him and he was such a, an a honest, good driver, you know, really, really quick. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't seem to mind. He never said, Look, stop being on my tail or anything. Neubau used to get excited. He said, What happens if Fangio goes off? And I said, Well, he doesn't. And, uh, but then, of course, we went to Zahnvort, and there's a lot of a lot of sand in the engine. Of course, they had, to, I'm sure, make a entirely new engine because I was following <laughs> But But uh, no, Fanzio to me is a very interesting person because I could beat him in sports cars, and. Uh, I can't see why, and I said to him, "You know, why aren't you a bit quicker in sports cars? He said, "Well, uh, he said I like, you know, I like to see my wheels. I don't like." He did. And well, I, I, mean, I don't know about anybody in here. If you're doing doing 250 k's, I'm not looking at my wheels. I'm looking 300 yards ahead. But anyway, it worked for Fandor because he was bloody quick. But uh, you know, but how did you how did you communicate with Fandor? Because his English was next to nothing. Well, we he? only sp- spoke about cars and Crumpet. So and so that makes it a bit easier, and uh, I mean actually mainly through mainly through uh, Arthur Kayser, who who is the PR guy in in charge, and um, I mean, he, uh, Fangio actually uh, was a fantastic driver, but you hear things about him as a mechanic, so but he really wasn't much good at a mechanic. I mean he did not know technically that much about the car. Neither do I, but I mean. Uh, he would, um, on his gear ratio choices, I thought were a bit funny. But we we had complete freedom. I mean, we could change the, the steering ratio and the, and the gearbox ratios and back axle and all those sort of things. But uh, he'd usually say, if I, I'd say what I wanted, he'd say, Anki-yo, which I think, I think actually means, and me. And you would share information with him? The... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, obviously on, on long races like the Targa or the Mili Mili, you can't share anything because you're not there, you know what I mean, until it starts. But at, at a race track like Monaco, uh, certainly we'd have we'd have the cars set up the same way and then we'd each do certain maneuver uh, or have things done on the car. If you wanted it a bit more uh, understeer over overseer, that would be, you know, you could choose it. Whether he would it'd be the same as mine or not, I don't honestly know.
0: Well, after Fangio, I would have thought your your favourite, your preferred teammate, I would imagine, was Tony Brooks. Tony
1: Brooks, yeah, yeah. T- Tony Brooks. I mean, was, he's such a, a quiet bloke, and uh, ama- I mean, amazingly fast. The, the great thing about him was, of course, he could do Formula Formula One and sports cars. There were quite a few drivers out there who were really good on sports cars, like people like Maioli, really good on sports. But in Formula One, they they, they, they couldn't handle it. But Tony, of course, could could do it in in both. And he was very, very fast, and we were about the same size, so therefore fitting in the car didn't was no problem and um, we had to i 'm glad to say a very good relationship
2: starting in, in our next issue of the magazine we've got a, a feature about Chris Bristow
1: yeah
2: who uh, was, was killed in that 1960 race when you were injured. Um, I was intrigued to. To read some of Ken Gregory's thoughts about how good he was, and he felt he could have been a future world champion. What was what was your opinion of, of uh, Chris Bristow?
1: From what I remember, my memory is not that good, quite honestly, he was he was a, a, a good fast driver. I I never really felt necessarily that he was nearly a world champion, but certainly good enough to be a number three in a good team. Really,
2: mm. and uh, aside from Fangio, and and you always say Tony Brooks was. Probably the, what the driver you respected most. Yeah, of the, yes. Anyone else who who else stood out for you in your era,
1: particularly? Um, Jack Brabham, because Jack, Jack Brabham was was a tough tough cookie. I mean, he was really fast. Of course, he could set his car up. He knew how to do it and so on. And uh, he he was you know a, he was fast driver. I mean, he'd go, he'd go over the edge and throw rocks at you. He didn't mind that. In fact, the trouble was at Zandvoort, he threw a twenty-eight pound slab of stone at I me and landed on my tire and burst it so that fixed that but but um, Jack wouldn't worry about that sort of thing <laughs> but I mean we were good friends because he was you know he, I mean he's a nice bloke and uh, but a tough but a real tough tough Aussie
0: and you were uh, I mean people always say talk about you know the, the the battles there might have been between Senna and Schumacher yeah uh, and in many ways you could say this exactly the same about you and jimmy clark couldn't they yes because you you were aware in the last your last year that jimmy was going yeah. to be the, the guy oh, to worry oh, absolutely. about
1: Absolutely. i mean G- jimmy came uh, i mean uh, our careers sort of cross rarely or i faded out um, and I, I said to her, i can remember saying to rob walker you know i'm not going to be able to beat this bloke unless i've got a car as good as his because we all because neither cooper nor lotus would sell us their the modern car, they'd sell last year's. So we had last year's bit of crap, but it was well sorted, you see. So that's the good news about it, but uh, that,
0: uh, And so in 62, you would have been in a Ferrari.
1: Yeah, See, so yeah. that, that to me is really awful because I went down and I'd had a row with Enzo Ferrari in 1950, because he'd messed me about. And I vowed I wouldn't drive for him, and I did drive a, a Ferrari, I think, on 14 occasions. and. One I was disqualified because the mechanics put in fuel when I came in for for brake linings. The other one we were leading at Le Mans when the fan blade came off and the other 12 I won, so I had a, a good, re, good relationship with the uh, Ferrari. I mean, uh, Enzo had been to see Enzo at the, at the end of 61, and he said to me, tell me what you want, and I'll build it, 246 or 248, and I'll build it. And I said, well, I want it painted in Rob Walker blue, and he actually ag- agreed, and uh, so we kissed and made up, and, and uh, then of course I went in the Lotus and had a shunt, and that fixed it, and I had to start working for a living at 32. <laughs> Poor deal. You, you've been working ever since. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: um, this evening really is a, as much about um, you as, as as up here on the stage, and it's really a great opportunity for uh, for our readers to ask Sterling questions directly. So I'm keen to open the uh, the questions up to the floor. So if you've got questions, please do put your hand up now, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll fire away. Chap down here at the front. Uh, people of my generation and older generations crave driving older cars. When you were younger and just getting into racing, did you crave driving a lot earlier cars? Cars of the 20s or...?
1: No, no, quite frankly, I've always wanted to have the best car I could get, rather than a bit of something old banger. <laughs> I can understand your attraction, because they certainly have a, a, they are very attractive in very many ways, but um, uh, I would, I'm always, was always trying to get, you know, later, the mo- most recent model as I could, because I felt I had a better chance of, of success.
2: I mean, there is a, a real romanticism now about old racing cars from your from your era. Can you imagine in 40, 50 years' time whether
1: people will feel the same way about cars today? I don't think so because I think a car. That, I was very lucky at the time I was racing. I think the driver contribution to success I think probably was 10 or 15 percent. I think today, not because the drivers are not that good because they are fantastic, but I think it's gone up a notch and it's a very very small area. Because, because I think all the cars do certain things so much better than they did. And uh, I mean, racing in my era, if if you got oil surge, then you had to drive accordingly. Well, now I don't know if they get oil surge now. They probably don't bother with it with Mobile One or something. But but uh, we certainly didn't. You know, different things would happen, and you'd have to coax the car home. I mean. The other thing that amazes me now is how reliable the cars are, not only engine-wise, but I mean, how long since a car threw a wheel? I can't remember, Mm. actually. I mean, it's a good long time, isn't it? But then, of course, you know, losing wheels was fairly common. I mean, I remember losing a wheel in Rome, and I was driving for HWM, and I walked back to the pits, and John Heath says, what's happened? I said, well, a wheel came off, actually, and, um, you know, (laughs) so I had to leave the car. So he said, well, look, look, as soon as practice is over, you go around there and you get it back. So, <laughs> well, then understandable, because the tower was 50 quid and the Virani wheel was 50 quid. So anyway, I went back to this, where, the, where this bloke was, and I said to the guy, can I have my, tire, my wheel back, please? He said, not until you've rebuilt this wall. Because it was, you know, it was one of those walls with all the bricks on it. So I had to put them all back, and then he gave me the wheel back. And you know, I often think, I don't think Michael Schumacher would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: any, more, any more questions? Another ch- chap here. Um, just before I ask uh, the, the question, N- Nigel, I'd like to say to you I really appreciate what you write every month. Really do. It's really
0: yeah, yeah. good. Yeah.
2: And, and Sir so Sterling, um, we all want to know about the Milimelia, don't we? So. Um, Tell us a little bit about the bits
1: that we don't know about the (laughs) Milimelia. Well, the Milimelia of course, was a thousand, for those of you who are too young to know, uh, it was a thousand miles round Italy, started in the north, right down to the south, opposite uh, Rome, a place called Pescara, across the mountains, three passes, and back up over the the foot of the reticophony and the reticosa, back to, to where we started. And the, the, uh, we decided there was no way we could learn. I mean, there's no way I'm going to learn a thousand miles. So we made notes I made with Jenks. Jenks was a weird bloke, for those of you who don't know him. Uh, Jenks, he was said to Alan Henry once, um, there's a, car, a new car being shown down this way. Would you like to come down and have breakfast with me? So he said, oh, that'd be very nice. So uh, he goes down there and he's sitting there and um jenks gives him bacon eggs whatever he did and then he went over and he was by the washing up and he said aren't you going to jo- uh, join me he said i can't he said why not he said well you've got the plate and uh, th- th- that's what he was like i mean we had the i bought him some socks because i didn't think he changed them frequently enough and, and they had yellow stripes yellow and black stripes we call them the colorado beetle but But he was a fantastic man, and and, uh, the problem we had with the Mille Melia was we obviously didn't know how long it would take, but we had a rough idea. And uh, I said to Jenks, you know, we're going to have to have a pee. We're going to have to slash in 12 12 hours. We thought it would be about 12 hours. And so we went around and on a hairpin, we worked up pressure, unzipped our fly, jumped out, had a quick slash, got back in, and it was much too long. So I said, we can't, we can't waste all that much time just having a pee. So I said, well, look, what we'll do when we come into Rome, where they're going to change the tyres and refuel and all that sort of, we'll do it there. But, of course, I hadn't realised that when we came in with the race, they put up 75,000 grandstand seats. And there we were. And of course, I can't do it like that. I'm a bit of an exhibition, it's not that much. So I ran behind the, the, the sands and had a quick slash, and I, it was actually one, one minute, four seconds. I know that, because that's how long how long we how long we took but uh, and we also you know but the the, uh, the me, me, I mean the, the uh, Mercedes were absolutely terrific about their cars and everything else I mean the one thing you didn't think about was the car ever breaking and uh, it wasn't easy to drive but it was remarkably strong and um, you know and of course you had inboard brakes and that meant to get the dust of the brakes and, and the oil, sort of oil fumes around. So that's why we got those, you know, panda eyes. And uh, Jenks, of course, once he, he looked around or something and his, and his glasses blew off. Well, thank God he'd been thinking enough to bring a second pair. Uh, yeah, it went, it went like this, meaning I want something to eat because we had a pipe, you know, a drink. And so he, he got an orange out. And peeled it, and by the time he peeled it, of course, it was absolutely black. So I threw that out of the side, and thank God we got a banana. <laughs> if you had a banana, you can. It, and it's really clean to eat. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it was a, an amazing race because the first car went at nine o'clock at night, at half-minute intervals, right through to midnight and that's 360 cars. At midnight, they went at one minute intervals. I was at, went at 722, because that's the car number, and I was not the last car. So if you work that out, there's over 600 cars. Now, when you reckon also that most of these cars are driven by sort of Italian hairdressers with go faster <laughs> tape down the center, you know, you, you can realize that, that really it wasn't a very safe place to be out there with them. Because there, there are no, no flag signals. Obviously, you can't have flag signals, because visiting people... And people, of course, will lean forward like this, looking up the road, and, you, and you're therefore driving into a cone of people. Well, thank God they weren't English, because they didn't get... <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I would make, waggle my steering a little bit like this, and they'd think, look, shun, they pull back, give a bit more room. But it was an absolutely unique event, which um, obviously couldn't happen now.
0: I I still think one of the most, every time I read it, I mean God knows how many times I have, it still startles me every time, the fact that you averaged all but 100 miles an hour for 1,000 miles on public roads in 1955. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's because
1: obviously, most people kept off the roads. Roads weren't closed. They couldn't close the roads, but people kept off them because they wanted to watch it. But of course, you've got refrigerated trucks and all that sort of stuff, uh, which you know, a bit in the way sometimes. Um, but the but the, I mean, the SLR, which is certainly the greatest sports car in the world has ever had, uh, was so suited to it. I mean, we had no problems whatsoever. Absolutely right through.
2: So, were you really confident that? You- you could win the race with all those months of preparation that went into the the media.
1: No, I wasn't actually, because I because I, I didn't know the circuit. And that's going to go on Jenks's signals, which which were enormous help. I mean, if you're going up a hill, 160, 170, into a into a, a village and going over the top, you need to know whether it's left or right. I don't have to get over it. You know, things like that. I right? knew, and then of course we certainly put if there, was, if there was a place which was uh, look faster than it was for instance one place where the roads going along and then suddenly goes left over a railway line and it's, in fact Sydney Allard uh, mis, mis, uh, you know didn't make it through and he went up the, the railway line apparently <laughs> and uh, things like that we had those things noted down and it's, it's really serious things I mean when Jenks would give me a, you know like this or it'd be flat out and then sometimes he'd go like this and then right so, so I knew coming into a corner, what sort of corner to expect.
0: I always wonder with Jenks, actually, if he was one of those people, like we, we always thought about Gilles Villeneuve, literally didn't have a sense of fear. And I remember talking to him about, you know, in the, in the days of uh, when he was, he was riding the, you know, the sidecar with Eric Oliver, leaning out of the bike, you know, going through Bournonville on the old Spa. And you sort of think, well, anybody can do that Uh, maybe doesn't have a sense of fear at all. And I I wonder if that ever occurred to you. Did you ever think maybe he's a wonderful navigator, co-driver, everything else?
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads
1: and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is he perhaps just from my sake a little too brave?
1: Well, I I must, in in truth, I I never never thought of that. I I thought, well, he's going to have the same shunt as I am, so he's going to look after himself. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, that race is such a special sort of thing and, and until you get into it, the, the hype is so great, you know, and the amount of vehicles around and the if you go into the square, they put numbers on the car if it looks sporty, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it was, was quite a unique event, really.
2: Right, I must have some more questions. Oh, there's, uh, there's a couple here. We'll get to you in a second over this side. Jen, start with this chap here. If you were 70 years younger, would you go into Formula One again? So if yesterday was your 14th birthday instead of...
1: Yeah, I'm sure I would, because that was the only thing around. But um, I don't think they had nearly as much fun uh, as we did. I, really, one has to say that motor racing in the early days was... was a lot of fun, and the the good thing about it was that the driver could improve his car with his mechanics. You get it set up the way you want to, you want a car to handle, and it's really quite important because you the, you have a car that handles you want a car that handles differently uh, on the road than than you do on a racetrack, and and because as you come round a corner, you always have to come round the corner expecting that it is possible something will be coming the other way and therefore your driving style is is a bit different.
2: Okay, another question?
1: Sir Sterling. such an honour to see you. A question about fitness. Today we hear so much about these guys who are the Grand Prix drivers, they spend what appears to be half their life in the gym. In your day, what did you do to keep yourself fit? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, what I, what it's a good I, question, I think. I, I didn't drink then, of course, which, which I think is a big help. But uh, no, I mean, frankly, racing every week as I was, um, it's the same as if you're playing football. You, I don't think you need to get fit. Once you fit into it, and uh, you know, I, I was doing all types of different races and so on, and so I just didn't know. I, I didn't. I did nothing at all uh, to keep fit. I can't think of anything I ever did that would have improved my fitness. I mean, I was fit, that's the reason, I, I think, really, why, it was, why well, I was not Well, and pick. the
0: other thing too, Sterling, is you, you know, you were racing something somewhere every weekend. Yeah, exactly. You were, racing, yeah, but you were racing, you were racing
1: constantly. And it isn't only the Sunday, because you've got Saturday and Friday usually, so you, so really you're racing, you know, for three days a week. So it doesn't, you don't need much uh, training. More questions, another one over here.
2: Yeah, hello, uh, my name is Bjorn, I'm from uh, Norway. Uh, I mentioned this to Mr. Roebuck uh, about qualifying. I don't know what it was like in your day, but uh, I think it should be more emphasis on, on qualifying in Formula One. I think you want to see the fastest driver and you can see that in qualifying. There's so much that can happen in a race, so many unforeseen things. Do you think that there should be, I think there should be points in qualifying, like five, three, two, one, for instance, and you, you wouldn't have people hanging around in the garage. Would, you, would, you would get real action on, on a Saturday. Uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts about that? Wouldn't you like to see the fastest driver in, on a clean lap, so to speak? Is that, is that something you would yeah, agree well with? I,
1: I think the quality is terrific now. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That's really sensational. But, um, yeah, you see, I've, I've, I've written in about it before, and it doesn't do any good. Because I th- I think a guy who gets pole should also get a, get one, two, or three points. I think That's what a, I mean, yeah. And, and also if he gets fastest lap in the race, because they don't get him for that, do they now? So, I mean, which seems to me a bit crazy, because, I mean, there were times, I know, in my career, when I go out and I try just for the lap record because of... I'd lost too much time by being in the pits with a van wall and they changed the the, 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 the um, carburetion or something. And then you go out and just have a go for fastest lap, which I think would, would add to it because I think the, the, the public like to see cars having a go.
2: Sterling, our, our friend from Norway has come all the way over here especially to see you tonight and to ask you that specific question. So I think he's going to be quite pleased that, that you agree with him. So that's, yeah, yeah. A, <laughs> that's a result. <laughs> <laughs> right, some more questions. There's one behind you, Jen. Directly.
1: Yeah, me. <laughs> I'm I'm getting it. Um, Sir Sterling,
0: you are clearly a man of you know great personality. Of of the current we'll say drivers that in Formula one over the last twenty years, who would you go for a pint with?
1: <laughs> if you make it wine, I'm more interested. But, um... Kimmy, Kimmy is always available <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I reckon probably Alonzo Or Vettel actually a Vettel. I find has got a good sense of humor. You, you know, you know the drivers better than I do Who would you see?
0: Well, in terms of actually going out for a drink with them um,
1: oh, this, yeah.
0: It's not so easy uh, <laughs> with This current bunch uh, I, I, but Kimmy would be the most fun, that's for sure, and he would also certainly buy the drinks.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sterling, it's interesting to hear you say Vettel, because you know he, recently we've seen him winning and getting getting booed by by crowds of people. Um, but yeah,
1: that's terrible. I must yeah. say I I can't understand why they're doing it. I think it's entirely wrong. Um, I just hope it doesn't. Make him as upset as it makes me, because I think it's really disgraceful, because he he is bloody good. All right, he does have the best car and so on, but he, nevertheless, he's still a st- stunning driver, in my opinion. And um, I so mean, to,
2: to win what's going to be four world championships championships on the trot. I mean, that's some achievement, isn't it?
1: It's an achievement which, unfortunately, has been lessened by Michael winning or how many he got. How many he had seven, I think. So, which which lessens it a bit because I don't think his were quite the, the same as now, you know.
0: I, I mean, I agree with you entirely about the booing, but I think you know it, there is it really isn't new. If you think back, you know, the height of Mansell mania. I mean, the booing that Senna used to get, in the, you know, in that era, I think you know it was exactly the same. You you just don't ever want to hear it anywhere.
2: And I guess drivers like Senna and Vettel. Psychologically, they're so they're, they're tough. It would bounce off them. I, I suppose. Would, would you agree or? Sure those two certainly. I
1: think there's a, the, nothing to do with this at all really But I think the tragedy in rotor racing really is that Senna got killed because Senna was killed because of safety. And uh, I mean, because if they'd left the bloody arm where it was, he'd have, he'd have run along the side of it and been okay. But they, they, Darwall changed it, so now, so a car, he was able to go in at full speed, hit head on, which, which is an awful thing. And I, do, I don't know um, what the answer is really.
2: And a little like we were robbed of you versus Jimmy Clark in the mid '60s because of your accident. Yeah. yeah. Senna's death robbed us of Senna versus Schumacher, which yes, would have been amazing. Yeah.
1: G- Jimmy Clark was going to be very tough. I must say that. I think he had, I, mean, I have a great respect for what he achieved and how he drove and so on, you know, and uh, right across including Indianapolis and everything else, and uh, he, he was sensational, really.
0: I remember you once saying, actually, you, you always wished you had done Indianapolis, oh, I, mean, like, yes, well, like, I would like, like your father did.
1: I, I, like it. I like to do it because of all the bullshit. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, when the Americans came over here, you know, they had the race of the world, so you remember that. Yeah. And I had a Mazda called an El Dorado special, which was not much, not much good. But still, it was interesting because I'm going around the top of the bank at 175 miles an hour and my arms crossed. Now, I'm not stupid. I knew something was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, this damn thing has just spun to the infield and stopped. This is no problem, but it, it wouldn't necessarily have been that way. But uh, when they had the Race of the Worlds, I mean, the Americans came over. And I remember at practice one time, it started to rain. So I called Batoki, I said, you know, start up, I want to go and see how the circuit is. Americans came across and they said, uh, what are you doing? I said, well, can they learn the circuit in the wet? We don't race in the wet, they said. I said, well, that's okay. There's Jack Fairman and myself, we can share the money. <laughs> 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 but uh, but they, were, they were really a good bunch of blokes, I must say. It, it, it's a race. My father raced there, of course, a couple of times. It's a race I'd love to have done because of you know, it, it is a, a stunning thing to have a thing a race like that. I think, and uh, and to win it, and yeah. and now, of course, the English are winning it more than the Americans, so it makes it even better. But he doesn't bring the money back at anything.
0: Why didn't you do it?
1: Yeah, well, why? I, the reason I didn't do it, quite frankly, was at the time when I was racing, Indianapolis is always on May the thirtieth, and it meant meant missing at least one Grand Prix, and. Uh, and the Grand Prix, I felt, well, I've got a pretty good chance of winning. To go to Indy, well, it would be interesting and so on, but I don't know that I, I, I felt much happier about racing on a road circuit with a road, you know, uh, our type of racing than theirs. But I, I'm, I'm sorry I did that now. Which, which one would have paid better back then, do you reckon? Oh, I'm sure Indy would have. Absolutely, oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at that time, I didn't, the money didn't seem to matter too much. More questions? Got some over
2: here, Jen. Well done.
1: I just wondered, what was Nuvolari amongst the greatest drivers? I am sorry. I didn't was was oh, oh, amongst oh, the greatest it
2: was drivers?
1: Stunning. I mean, I met Newvalari when he was past his prime and everything else, when in nineteen forty-eight, I think. But uh, absolutely, I mean, he must have been a magic man. I mean, the sort of things he did, and the races, the way he drove, and. Uh, I think the whole thing of he and Vartzi and all those guys, because they were really fast and their cars must have been absolute bastards to drive, particularly in the wet. I mean, we're going around the ring in the wet in one of their cars I should think would be quite exciting actually. Uh,
2: Sterling, <laughs> as a as a young boy, were you um, excited by motor racing, interested in it, or was it when you were older that you...
1: No, I got interested in, in it actually when I read uh, Prince Tula's bits and pieces, or. or you know, the, that book and it, uh, it seemed to me that look, he's going racing every weekend around Europe and I thought well it sounds, sounds terrific and luckily I had the opportunity from John Heath to join him in, not, not in the same sort of car but uh, to go with him around Europe and, and I, I must say I had a fantastic time
2: So you didn't really have heroes so to speak that you looked up to before you became, became a racing driver No, not really No, no Any more questions? There's uh, one behind you Jen, Oh, th- yeah. We'll try and get around to everyone. Um, so Sterling, you mentioned about fitness, but in Jenks's book, The Racing Driver, he talks about your amazing eyesight and observing you in the 55 milia looking sort of six inches in your rear view mirror to see Castellotti um, half a mile behind you, and then looking half a mile in front of you to see um, whoever else you're about to lap. Um, How did you manage passing the slower cars in front of you and did you have any near moments
1: Um, during the race? I'm sure we had many near moments, uh, because it has to be, I mean after all you're coming into a corner with another guy and he doesn't know you're there until you you pass him. Although we do flash, we did have the hooter connected with the flashers so they should know but the quality, the standard of driving in, in the Mille Miglia, obviously, was pretty moderate. I mean, there, you had all the fast people. I met the, the one car past us, and that was Castellotti. And it was fairly near the, the start, and he caught me up. He went past and he put his foot down, and I'll never forget this. He had these bloody great big black lines up the road, and I thought, well, he's not going to finish. And, of course, he didn't, you know, I because mean, before you can win, you've got to finish and uh, when uh, finishing the mealy does take a remarkable car
2: what about the little eggs
1: susie says what about the little eggs
2: the aisettas
1: oh yeah yeah well susie's talking about the aisettas of course those are those little egg things where the front door opens and they started quite early obviously they probably started nine o'clock the night before when i caught them up at four in the afternoon or something and uh, they, of course, they, they sat on the crown because the, the Italian rose had, had quite a big um, crown, you know, crown in the center. And these things are going along in the center and uh, I had to pull off pull off the centre line and then go back up in between these things. And of course, I looked in the mirror and the guy's fighting it like this to regain control because when a 300 SLR goes past you at 180, you can understand an egg is gonna be moved, isn't it? <laughs> Without breaking the yoke. <laughs> okay,
2: more questions.
1: It is very competitive for young drivers to get into Formula One. Now they start off in carts, they go to Formula Ford. Yeah, what was your first experience of a competitive drive? How did that come about? Well, I, I, uh, I said to I said to my father, I'd like to race. And uh, my father said to me, if you're gonna race, you're gonna wear a crash hat. And I said, Oh, Dad, that's a bit sissy. Because none of the fast drivers, then were wearing anything other than, the, other than the cloth helmets, you know, I mean, people like Chiron and Vimeo and all this lot. And anyway, in the end he said, no, you're not gonna race unless you wear a crash hat. And of course, the only way I could start was on hill climbs. And uh, which I think, I really do think hill climbs are a good place for people to start because the only person you're racing is, is the clock. And you know, you, if, you, if you've done a time and you think, well, I'm gonna, I must be faster, you keep your foot in a bit later and so on, I, I think it really is a good place to get into it. But of course, we didn't have carts when I started because they, they didn't come into or oh, much later. And um, so I was very lucky because I got a Cooper, and I was only, what, 17, 18, 17, I think, and uh, Kay Peter of the what was then the Daily Sketch came along, wrote a story about me, a, a, a boy of, you know, such a young boy and so on, and, and that was an amazing help to me because I got the publicity. And uh, then the companies begin to listen. And let me have a drive. But I can remember going around trying to get a drive for the TT, and I tried all sorts of all sorts of uh, companies. I mean Jaguar, Aston Martin, Eden MG, and all sorts of things. Nobody gave me a uh, give me a car because they were sure that I was driving faster than I should for my experience. And uh, luckily, a guy called Tommy Wisdom came along and said, "Listen, I've got an XK120. Would you like to run it in the TT?" And I did, and I managed to win it and get fastest lap and so on and that night of course Bill Lyons signed me up to to lead the team so that was my big big breakthrough at that time
2: okay more questions more more here
1: so Sterling good evening good could evening. I ask you what your favorite racetrack is Wars. my favorite racetrack yeah oh without a doubt a um, Nürburgring um followed by the Targa Targa Florio, I like because you can actually learn forty two miles, um, but the Nürburgring is 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 so special because so many people have sort of gone off through the hedge and down the bank, um, you know you go around there and that 's where Brohige went off, and somebody else and it is is really quite a demanding circuit i mean they 've put that rotten old piece down the bottom now for Formula One. Um, to make it safe, <laughs> with all the runoff and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but at least they've left the doorstep. So, so, without a doubt, I'd say that, that would be, have to be the one. Or Monaco, a totally different thing. Monaco is so special because you can see people. And, you know, I mean, I can remember going down to the hairpin and there's a very cute-looking girl on the left, actually, at Oscars. And, you know, i blow her a kiss every lap and all that sort of stuff. It's a very personal, personal <laughs> racetrack. track. Well, what about the old Spa? The old spa. The, the old spa. No, 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 no. <laughs> the old spa. The, <laughs> the, old the old spa.
0: The original oh, the spa. The original spa.
1: Oh yeah, well, the original spa was frightening. Played, I mean, it was quite. I mean, still, there's a great circuit. It, then it was even more daunting. And of course, I had an HWM, which wasn't really competitive, in truth. But uh, it was a good circuit. So you, you had a Lotus as well. Yeah, yeah. Which, which broke? Yeah, but the Lotus, is, yeah, the wheels came off. Yeah. I must say, Colin Chapman, you know, had no sense of humor because I, I won the U.S. Grand Prix driving at Lotus in 1961 and it was my birthday. And they gave me this lovely cake with a Lotus on the top. And I got the cake, got the knife, and I cut the front wheel off and gave it to Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Colin was not amused. <laughs>
2: Okay, okay, we've got a, another question here. There's a lady here who would like to ask you something. Dear Sirs, Sterling Moss, yeah.
1: they say you are a great man. Yes, you are. Thank Behind you. a great man, there is always a great woman. What do you think about it? <laughs> I mu- I must say, if it wasn't for my wife, my current wife, not the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I couldn't run my business, let alone anything else. I. I I, I really wouldn't know what to do. I, so I, I'm terribly lucky. Uh, I made, I stumbled on the way in practice. Um, n- number one I married because I thought she was good looking. Uh, but then that all changed. And, and she then married a guy I called Michael Taylor. And that was she, number two. Was it number two? Oh yes, oh yes, <laughs> Yeah. No. Number one was a Canadian, Katie Molson of uh, Molson's Brewery. Not that I drank. Uh, not that I drank. beer, I didn't. But um, uh, but but she was she was great, and we we got along really pretty well. In fact, now she comes and stays with us sometimes. So so everything there is good. Yeah. No. It was number two that was bad news. Thank you. <laughs>
2: okay. So can
0: I, can I?
1: Yes. Can I just propose a toast to Susie then?
2: Yeah. Why not? To
1: Susie. Cheers. I'll drink to that, to Susie. Susie, can you imagine being married to me? I know how difficult it is, <laughs> and she's she's remarkable.
2: Okay, got time for two more questions. So, uh.
1: so Sterling, um, what is it, what's the What's the characteristics that make a great racing driver as opposed to a bus driver like me? I think stamina is important. I think if you can do a good time, you must be able to do it not just once, I think many times, I think repetitious. I think having a good man behind you, like I had our Francis, who I'd say, right, well, let's try this or try that, and he would work all night if necessary, and uh, until I got the car to the way I liked it because if you, if you don't like driving a car, if there's it, something about it that you don't trust, it's very, very difficult to give 100%. So I think it's important to try to get the car in a situation where when you get in there, um, you have the courage to drive hard. It's difficult sometimes, I must say, because uh, I remember once going in, in Italy, in Naples, I mean, or somewhere else, I can't remember. Anyway, going down a hill and the big trees at the side and really big ones, I mean, it's sort of three foot. And, and I remember thinking, God, if I was in a Lotus now and the wheel came off, I'm not going to be too good. And so you've got to be able to have the concentration to put that out of your mind, because it does come in. I mean, there's no two ways about it. If you've had some problem, um, you, you do you are worried about it. And uh, you've just got to have the, the strength of mind, I think, to overlook that and, and get on with, with what you're doing.
2: OK, I think we've got time for one more question. Uh, Sir Sterling Conroe O'Brien, I've got a question on your races at Goodwood in the DB4 GT and the Ferrari 250 short wheelbase. Yeah. You raced, I think, the, the GT, the Aston first, and then the Ferrari afterwards. Why is it that the Ferrari is so much more popular than the DB4 GT? There are so many more of them, and they're worth three times what a Aston Martin DB4 GT is worth. When you would think it would be the other way around, that there are fewer of them. Was it that much better?
1: Yes, it was. I mean, the short wheelbase Ferrari was a very, very very good driver's car. And I mean, it's a car that you you could race. with very few limitations, I mean, it would rev freely. The brakes were good. The whole, everything was good about the car, and, and there's no doubt that I don't think any Aston has come actually up. Although the D.P.R. one, I must say, was was pretty good, but let down by a, a lousy sort of gearbox. Uh, but uh, but I, I must say, I would I would certainly take a short wheelbase Ferrari. Okay, I'm into one more. Sir Sterling, I'm intrigued. How do you feel about things like DRS? Oh, that's a good question. uh, I'm all for novel and interesting things, and and I suppose that falls in there, so I think it's something that I would be quite interested in. Um, particularly, you know, I, I think the whole I, one of the reasons for motor racing is to improve the breed and, and make everything better. And I think things like that come into that category. So I'm all for it.
0: You don't think it's a gimmick. You don't think it's a gimmick to make overtaking possible rather than impossible, as it was.
1: Yes, but but the point is that if you have a something that you can use to benefit your speed, I suppose it has to be worthwhile. I mean I, I've I've never I've never driven a car with that sort of uh, equipment on it. And so I really, I really can't give you a good answer. Do you Sorry. think
0: it makes better spectator sport?
1: Do I think it makes better Nigel? Better. Yeah, uh-huh. Nigel's the one to ask Um him, yeah.
0: mm-hmm. uh, superficially, yes. Yeah, but it's not real. Mm-hmm. To me it's not real. That's that's if you've got two cars that are not in the same specification, then to me that's
2: a gimmick. We're going to have to wrap things up, but before we do, Nigel, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You spent most of your adult life, if not your childhood, uh, writing, reading, um, and talking to the man beside me. If you had to name the one race where you think was his greatest, which one would you go for?
0: Well, I, I suppose I would have to say, I mean, I'm sure you'd give the same answer, Sterling, Monaco,
1: Monaco 61. Yeah. Monaco
0: 61. Uh, I mean, that's a ra- I wasn't at the race. I was, I was too young and I wasn't there. But I, so it's a race that I'd always wished I'd seen. And the other one, apart from that, actually, was the thousand um, kilometre sports car race at the Nürburgring. In '59, yeah. in the Aston, when well, I yeah. think you did 41 of the 44. Perhaps. Yes,
1: well, you had to, you had to give your co-driver some some time. You, you know. yeah. Well, <laughs> I
0: know, but all your co-driver did, in fact, when he took the
2: car over, was stick
1: it <laughs> in the ditch, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it <laughs> did, it did happen, yes, it did, but uh,
2: yeah. S- Sterling, would you agree with Nigel 61 Monaco? I think
1: 61 Monaco purely because um, I got pole position. And uh, if I'd done 100 laps, and there were 100 laps then, at the same speed as I I qualified, and I qualified on pole, I'd have only been 40 seconds longer completing the race, which I think gives you an idea of enormous pressure um, on the drivers, and myself being one of them, and the other drivers as well because we would, I mean, I could see them in two seconds is nothing, not, not for three and three quarter hours. And I could see every time we come past on the hairpin, I could see them. So I'd sort of wave like this as though, you know, as I couldn't care less. And I'm uh, hoping that they were feeling <laughs> really chuffed. But, uh, so that's, that's really the reason I think for that.
2: I think that's a good point to finish on. Ladies and gentlemen, Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been great to see so many of our readers here. I'd also like to thank those of you who brought your wonderful cars that uh, were parked outside and indeed in the foyer over here at the Hurlingham the, uh, the Club. Um, it's been a, a great occasion. It's always an absolute pleasure to, to listen to Sir Sterling and, of course, Nigel. So, ladies and gentlemen, one more time for a round of applause for Sir Sterling Moss.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much because your, your questions are what make this. I mean, um, mm-hmm. listening to people, to enthusiastic people asking about our sport is something that I really enjoy. And to and see so many of you here um, interested enough to listen to my waffling on uh, mm-hmm. is very pleasing. So thank you very much.